Hey there, welcome to Pickled Parables. This podcast is presented by Parable Ministries as a Bible teaching resource. Thank you for joining us. Pickled Parables is a podcast about taking in and living out the Bible. Here we will study, contemplate, and testify to the Bible's incredible teachings and how it leads us to live better lives. To stay up to date with all things Parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. We hope today's message finds you well. Hi guys, welcome back. Um, it's me, it's Hunter again here. And, um, I, I am glad to be back and able to share with you again. Um, today we're going to be beginning... First Peter chapter four, and as we continue our study in First Peter, we are going to arrive at a portion of the book which reflects on all that Peter has said thus far about Christians and suffering, and it's going to bring that uh, collection of, of statements and data together with what Peter had said about Christian conduct in light of that suffering. So it's going to kind of bring those two together. In short, um, it's a lot. We have been exploring uh, these things for a few months now. And so it it does well to to give us just a bit of a note about where we've been. Um, Despite suffering, Christians can and should be united in mind, have sympathy and tender hearts for one another, and still express and live lives characterized by brotherly love. Likewise, despite suffering, our lives and conduct should be characterized by the living hope we have in Jesus, that our suffering is not in vain, and though we may be vindicated in this life, we will be vindicated in our future hope in the coming kingdom. Christ is the ultimate example and reminder of the nature of suffering and the victory he provides through his resurrection. And as a symbol of remembering this before others, Peter connects the sacrament of baptism to the image of identifying with Jesus' suffering as well as his victory and resurrection. I think, and I noted this in our, in our previous lesson, but I think that's something we often miss. Yes, baptism is a celebration, but part of the celebration is that we are identifying with the suffering of Jesus. As Peter is going to discuss, often when we identify ourselves with Jesus' suffering, when we align ourselves with Jesus, we are up for a fair amount of suffering ourselves. As believers, we make our identification with Jesus' suffering death, and resurrection when we partake in that immersion baptism. And what Peter is going to say is is directly tied to what he is going to say about God's grace. So so what, what he wants to communicate about suffering is now going to be connected to God's grace. And so we continue in Peter with, with all these things in mind. Remember, it's a letter. His original audience likely um, read all of this in one shot, the entire thing. So we continue in 1 Peter with these in mind. It says, 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, for the will of God. 
For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. When we observe Jesus, Peter challenges us, and and specifically when we observe Jesus' suffering, Peter challenges us to have the same mindset as Christ. He tells us something interesting about the actual process of suffering. Peter says, The one who suffers in the flesh has ceased from sin and lives for the will of God. I want to note here, the suffering Peter is talking about is just not, as we've said in the past, is not just basic regular human suffering caused by the consequences of our choices. Everyone wakes up with sickness, aches and pains. Yes, even us millennials. And he's not talking about, again, suffering that is the result of our sins, consequences. He is also not talking about the suffering we bring on ourselves through unwise living. These may not be sin, but when we act foolishly, we reap the consequences. If we say something hurtful to a friend or loved one, break that trust, we live with the discomfort and suffering as a result. It's natural consequences. We have that for a bit. That is not what Peter is referring to. Rather, The suffering Peter is referring to is specific to this picture of this person who is trying to do what is right, to live for Jesus, and live as one who actively identifies with Jesus through their words and actions. They're trying to live as God would desire them to, and in a way that represents God well to those around them. And, And then even though they live this way, Peter goes on to note, they they suffer for it. Likely, they suffer because of it. The suffering Peter is highlighting here is suffering because of Jesus. That's the suffering that Peter's concerned with. And so his argument seems to be this. When he says a person who who, um, has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, it, it is... But a person who is willing to undergo excruciating suffering and immense pain on account of Jesus shows in that suffering that they care more about the hope they have in Christ than they do about the passing comforts of this world. In short, it is those who choose Jesus over sin and have suffered as a result. And so when Peter says they have ceased from sin, that doesn't mean that they cannot sin. That day... That hope is to come. But in a very real way, sin no longer has its hooks in them. The process of suffering here 
it, it seems to have a refining quality about it. And it's tied to uh, Peter's next statement. They don't live for those passions anymore. They live for the will of God now. But when suffering occurs, and each time you are faced with sin and you choose Jesus or faced with suffering and choose to continue to identify with Jesus despite suffering, the people around you notice that. It stands out. Peter reminds his recipients, he reminds us, that the time for living the way the culture wants you to live ended the day you believed in Jesus. It ended the day that you publicly identified with, with him in that you were baptized. Those days are gone. Peter says, you no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, many of these had been dispersed to regions where the Gentiles were more prominent. And so this would have been really striking to them. You might live in their midst. Do not live as they do. He, Peter gives a list, and, and I should note that this is not a, an exhaustive list, nor is it a um, necessarily culturally um, permeating list, though I think we could find many things in the list that are true of our culture today. But he says, there's no more sensuality, no more chasing your passions, no more drunkenness, no more orgies, no more drinking parties, no more idolatry. These are likely things that were a common part of the culture in the world that these dispersed Christians had had been dispersed to or had come from. These are the things that when you wear the badge of the culture, this is what it looks like. Sensuality. Wanton passion, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, idolatry. And Peter says, no more with that. Why? Why ought the Christian live different than the culture? Especially when we think that doing so is going to cause more suffering. Well, besides the wisdom of God having a lot to say about the dangers of all of these things. Um, you can go do yourself a little word study. Take each one of these and, and plug them into Google and, or plug them into if you have like a, a Bible app and see if you can search um, and, and see what it says, especially in the Proverbs about each one of these things. It doesn't have a lot of good to say. But Peter says, this is how the culture lived. <laughs> and, and if you as a Christian are indistinguishable from the people you live with, that you are in the midst of. You may be, one, living like the culture, or two, have only ever surrounded yourselves with Christians, and as such, perhaps your testimony is not being evidenced to others. If you're living like the culture, as a result, your suffering is likely minimized. And as as an extension of that, as Peter has said in chapter 3, the blessing of identifying with Jesus' suffering is also minimized. When everyone else around you is gearing up for sin and they seem to like revel in it, it seems to permeate just who they are and how they live. When, When that is put before you, 
Peter's challenge here is for Christians, for us, to surprise them by refusing. Peer pressure is an interest, interesting thing. I, I work at a public high school, and man, I see kids talk each other into all sorts of nonsense. And, and maybe an exercise for us would be to ask, as I live, are there ways that I live that the culture actually celebrates? Like, when I go about my life, the culture looks in on that. Do they, do they cheer me on? Peter says, when you choose not to participate in the things the, cult, the culture around you wants you to, he says that they will malign you for it. Now, malign isn't really a word that we hear thrown around very often nowadays, um, but it, it, it essentially means to speak evil with the intent of harming someone. It's a lot like slander. Um, but malign almost carries the idea that you're speaking evil in the hopes that someone else might, or you could convince someone to do physical harm to them. When you say no to the sin of the culture, you often receive every wicked label the culture can throw at you. And it can be extremely hard to understand why. The reason is this. By not engaging, you are taking somewhat of an ethical moral stand that that person feels personally attacked by. You are not attacking them, or at least you should not be. But as they view you, it holds up a mirror to what they do. The life Jesus calls us to is often offensive to the culture. It challenges them to think about some of the things they have for themselves. Peter says of this suffering that those who seek to malign the one who desires to do as God desires will themselves stand before God, the same Father who saves and secures those who are His, and they will have to justify their slander. And they won't be able to. They can't justify it. But what about your name, your good name? Your name may not ever be restored in this life. You may face suffering and and your name is never set right. And if that is the case, Peter is arguing it's okay. Because as a Christian, they aren't maligning you. They're maligning the Jesus that you serve. Something interesting happens with the truth of the gospel in the face of suffering. When we identify with Jesus and with the suffering of Jesus, even though we suffer, the truth of of the gospel has this uncanny ability of spreading, sometimes even more so, saving even more. I think of the stories of the early church, especially of the early martyrs, and just how in the face of such excruciating suffering, often unto death, they, they were so convinced and believed so wholeheartedly in the gospel, they were willing to die and often did for it. And yet, those who look on often go on to be convinced by it themselves. And I believe that, that idea, that notion there, is, is related to what when Peter says, whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Something about it changes what we care about. May we, as Peter says, 
Be judged in the flesh the way people are, but live in the Spirit the way God does. That doesn't just happen. God uses suffering to make it happen in us as we continually choose Him. Peter goes on to say, If we suffer, if we desire to look different from those in which we live, we should be motivated to live differently. Verse 7 says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Go hospitality to one another without grumbling, and as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies, in order that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Much like many of the early apostles, and many of generations of Christian saints, Peter believed, or perhaps hoped, simply, for the return of Jesus. And many Christians in the early days of, of the church believed they were going to get to see it. And, and I, I think there's been this notion of every generation of, of Christians since that it, that it could happen in their lifetime, and, and very well so. But in the face of suffering, and in light of this expectation of Jesus' return, and in contrast with how the Gentiles would like them to live, Peter challenges Christians in a number of things. First, he says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. How are our prayers impacted by our sober-mindedness? First, self-control is a trait that stands in contrast to the reckless living that Peter has highlighted in the culture just previously. Rather than responding recklessly and carelessly in passions and orgies and idolatry and drunkenness as the culture that they lived in does, and for us, we must just simply ask, well, what does the culture care about? What do they say I should do when things are difficult? Rather than responding in that way, Christians are to be a people of prayer. Peter's reminder is, if we are not of sober mind, our minds are not clear, it impacts our ability to pray. You go back and look at that list that he just shared about the culture. All of those, in some way, affect our thinking process. He challenges us, as he did at the beginning, to keep on loving one another earnestly. Remember, he, he introduced or he closed out his, his discussions about Christian living and their, their witness by saying, you know, y'all should pursue brother, brotherly love. It challenges us to love one another earnestly. It's one thing to show love. But being earnest in our love is a whole other thing. And if you've ever received earnest love from someone, you know the difference. Because earnest love seeks to keep on loving even when things are not easy. When you'd be tempted to check the box with that person and move on. Or to point at your own hardship and suffering and focus on that and what you're going through as a reason why you don't have to do more. Earnest loving says, I'm going to do more. I'm going to pursue loving this person into the kingdom. 
When it comes to love, our earnestness is essential because earnest love is motivated by the type of love that God showed us. Peter had undoubtedly experienced and received this love firsthand from Jesus. Consider this scene after Jesus' death and resurrection. This is John 21, starting in verse 11. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. And although there were so many, the net was torn. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. And now one of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this is the third time Jesus was revealed to the disciples when he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said at the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. In this scene, Jesus restores Peter after his denial of of Christ. Jesus extends earnest love to Peter. That even in the face of Peter's denial, love here truly is shown to cover a multitude of sins. When someone treats us poorly, sins against us and others, we choose to love, bless, and do not curse. It is the heart of forgiveness. When we, in love, choose not to dwell on and focus on and cling to the sins we have been afflicted by, but actively love, there is power and there is overcoming forgiveness. Jesus' love for Peter covered the sin of his denial. Jesus' love for us covers the sins we enact against God through faith in his work on the cross. Or, as Paul put it in Romans 5, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have the greatest example of earnest love, love in the face of suffering, in the person of Jesus. It is for that reason that Peter says at the beginning of our portion of 1 Peter, have the same mind as this, have the same attitude as Christ. Peter here also calls believers to show hospitality without grumbling. Hospitality is an amazing gift. 
And those practiced in it have this ability of extending love in a welcoming and specific way. True hospitality seeks to welcome in and make others feel content. But Peter notes, we do so without grumbling. Hospitality without, with, with grumbling is not hospitality. This message to, was to those who were dispersed and facing suffering. And yet, though they are sometimes even without home, Peter challenges them, be hospitable. It is a reminder to us today, you don't have to live in a super mansion to, to show hospitality. In fact, as I think back in my life, the hospitality which has stood out most to me were those who humbly shared what they had. I think just of the generosity of, of other churches, how they open up their facilities. Those things stand out. Peter encourages the believers to use their spiritual gifts to serve one another. When God gives gifts, when he, when he gifts believers with spiritual gifts, he gives them for the growth and betterment of his church. We are to use our gifts to serve one another. Christians, then, should be discerning and cautious when one claims to have or exhibit a gift and uses their gift for their own self-promotion. Towards the end of his letter, Peter is going to be talking about false teachers. It takes discernment. Because when asked, they will tell you they do what they do for God, but we should be able to discern if this is a guise. Peter's going to have a lot to say about that, but it's important because our gifts are a product of and exist because of God's grace. By God's grace, we have our gifts, and so Peter says we should be good stewards of this grace and use our gifts to express that earnest love to serve one another. Peter here expresses a couple of examples. He doesn't give an exhaustive list. It's interesting because when Paul writes of spiritual gifts, he often gives a significant list of giftings. But he says if someone has the gift of speaking, they should speak as if their message is important and is of significance and from God. Allow the Holy Spirit to carry that message. Again, this should be to the effect of serving our brothers and sisters. I want to note here this mindset that sharing and teaching God's word is for the betterment of his people was one of the notions that when, when Jesse reached out to me a couple years back now and told me about this project, Parable Ministries, the presentation of it was so straightforward. I want to I want to provide something online for those who have access to it that might engage with scripture in a different way. So that way there is there's sound Bible teaching out there for them to to seek out and to share. I know Jesse, you know, he, he cares deeply about the teachers involved and and um, that the truth of, of God's word is presented. And it was contagious. I, wa- I wanted to be a part of that. Peter says that the message of the gospel, that, that's those who speak, that 
if they have that gift, then that message should be from God. If someone has the gift of serving, they do so for the betterment of others. The strength for their service comes from God. So whether we're speaking or serving in everything we do as believers, we do it so God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The idea is, when we live lives that look like Jesus, especially in the midst of a culture and people who do not, when we identify with Jesus and His suffering, and as a result, experience it for ourselves, often because we are different than the culture around us, in the face of this suffering, we continue to love earnestly, be self-controlled, of right mind, remain prayerful, seek to be hospitable, and steward well the good gifts God gives. And all of those things, when we, when we do those things, it results in one thing. The goal is one thing. Peter has been building to this argument. What is the point of living well and facing suffering? And it is that in everything, even in the suffering of God's people, that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. God's grace continues to supply believers and has done so for, for centuries, millennia. As the result, when people view this, they want to know more about that God. They give glory to God through the evidence of Jesus in our lives. As we suffer, we become stewards of God's grace. And as a result, bring God glory. To Jesus belong glory and dominion forever and ever. That same Jesus who suffered in the flesh on our behalf, that we might be saved to bring us to God, he has glory and dominion forever. That's the hope. That's what we look forward to. That's what we cling to in God's grace, despite our suffering. And as God gives us grace, so we steward it in the face of suffering. That God may receive all glory. Amen. Amen indeed. Thank you for listening to Pickled Parables. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us, subscribe, and share with your friends. If you're interested in more things like this, check out our secondary podcast called My Dusty Bible. To stay up to date with all things parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. Parable is a volunteer organization, and we would deeply appreciate your prayers. Thank you for joining us today. We'll catch you later.